Bad Patient Malpractice Makes Perfect. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Beers. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this week's health news. So Laura, what were our topics this week? The topics are medical errors, siblings, mouthwash, and brain cells. Alright, and if you combine all those, you have a <laughs> medical error involving a sibling and some damaged brain cells from mouthwash. Yeah, I mean, shit, did you already read the articles? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so before we get going on those, though, we had a listener question that we promised to ask or to answer this week in our in our enormous glut of listener questions. And this question was from Anthony. He wanted to know um, about the elephant earwash system, which is an earwax removal system, and just about earwax removal in general. So thank you, Anthony, for the most disgusting topic we have yet to cover. <laughs> <laughs> this one, like, actually sent me to this horrifying YouTube video where there was a kid removing earwax and it was like watching a car accident on the freeway. I could not look away. I didn't want to see what I saw, but there was like this huge clump of stuff and it came out of his head and I can never, I can never like get that image out of my brain. And so that is terrible, but I do this for you, Anthony. That's, you know, this is what, this is the risk we're willing to take, right, Laura? This is... I mean, yes, I'm willing for you to take all the risks. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked into the device, which is essentially like, it's like a little spray bottle and it has a small tube that comes off of it. And then um, there's a little, a, a tiny plastic tube that comes off of that. So kind of progressively smaller and the little thing goes in your ear and you kind of like, you inject water into your ear. So I could not find any like medical review or any like, third-party review of that specific system, but I did learn that earwax, which apparently is also called cerumen, did you, or cerumen, yeah, did you know? Yeah, I totally, totally knew that, Robin. I I had actually never heard that word. I use it all the time in my general (laughs) vernacular. (laughs) Yeah, I'd never heard of it, and I actually had to look up how to pronounce it, like one of those little uh, YouTube videos where someone goes, cerumen, and I was like, okay. Um, well, then you didn't say it like that. I feel like you messed it up. I know. <laughs> Sorry. So apparently, you know, earwax, everyone has some. It's healthy, and it's part of, like, your ear system for cleaning itself, right? So so a little dust and dirt might get into your ear, and the wax is supposed to trap it. And then when it gets – this is the gross part. When it gets, like, you know, stuff in it, then eventually it's supposed to fall out. And, of course, having a hunk of – dirty wax falling out of your ear is really unsightly and and really, really gross. And so people have been wanting to find ways of removing it. And it turns out that one of the worst ways is ear candling, which the FDA has said is like, can cause all sorts of burns and and terribleness. So don't do that. Um, But I found this, this piece and it's from uh, the, like yet another medical agency that has like a super long name, but it is the American Academy of otolaryngology dash head and neck surgery so they they came up with that i think after an extensive branding procedure <laughs> what what yeah i think i think otolaryngology even i can't do this one otolaryngology is like ent's like ear nose throat okay people so 
they had said, you know, okay, under ideal circumstances, you should never need to clean your ears, but is life ever ideal? No. Never. So if, then they said, okay, if you're having like symptoms, then you should clean your ear. And the symptom would be partial hearing loss, which I want to suggest if you get to that point, how much wax is that? A lot of wax. That's like a gross amount. Uh, Ringing or noises in your ear. Although I think a lot of people have ear ringing that's not related to wax, but okay. Or earache, a sensation of fullness in the ear. I don't even know what that means, but I don't even (laughs) want to know. You can feel it. (laughs) Itching, odor, or discharge. Discharge. I mean, if there's stuff... I just can't. I just can't. I don't know why this is so gross, but it's so gross. Because it's your ear. Yeah. So so they had said, okay, you can use, like, a cloth. Um, You can use, like, mineral oil, baby oil. They said that you can use peroxide, but I'm... Yeah. 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 I I feel like that's what, like, uh, eardrops... That's what they are? Are kind of because like when I when I was had earaches as a kid and went to the doctor, my ear, my ears were always really waxy. <laughs> so they couldn't ever see anything, so they just gave me stuff, but it was supposed to also help with like the wax too. Oh, okay, okay. Um But I'm also most likely just making that up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really remember. I mean, I was I was under eighteen, probably under twelve. Okay, so it was more than half my lifetime ago, <laughs> and I was under twelve. So yeah, so who really knows? I just knew they were sticking an instrument in my ear, and they said that they couldn't see anything. <laughs> But did you end up having an ear infection? I mean, they just said I had an ear infection because my ear hurt. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. And Wait. I'm pretty sure that the antibiotic or eardrops can't hurt. Well, I mean, oh, don't go there with me with antibiotics, can't Well, I don't, I don't think it's an antibiotic for your ear, right? It's just, what is it for an earache? What is the drops that they put in? I have no idea. I never had an Magic. <laughs> You've never had an earache? Um, no. Okay. So I had one in grad school once because I like was swimming and then I sleeping with earplugs in Mm. and I like almost had one. So I went to the student health clinic where, as you know, you can get like really top notch medical care. Absolutely. And that's where if people like they graduate from Harvard medical school and they're like, is there somewhere a student health center where I can serve? That's typically where they go. So I'm in this exam room and I'm facing this wall and on the wall is this poster with a picture of a cup of coffee and it, and the poster says how about a nice cup of shut the hell up. I kid you not. I kid you not. This was the exam room. So I'm sitting in there and I'm thinking like, oh, all right, great. And so the first thing that they do is tell me that they've got to do a pregnancy test. And I was like, uh, not doing that. So somehow I like, I, I don't know. I like told them no. And then I was staring at the sign thinking well, maybe I should shut the hell up um and then ultimately like the nurse left in a huff and then the doctor who saw me was like didn't think it was an infection so wasn't like it wasn't there yet and so wasn't I think wasn't going to prescribe anything or something and so then I didn't have to but apparently this is like a the worst story ever <laughs> this is not a bad story I thought the poster was notable you went to the doctor and then they <laughs> didn't give you anything, but they wanted to make sure you weren't pregnant. Like, okay, they wanted to do the pregnancy test before the doctor even looked at me. They wanted to just like verify you were not pregnant. Yes, they apparently they were saying like, did you look pregnant? <laughs> I hope not. Did you have like swollen cheeks or something? No. To fly? Why? Why would swollen cheeks mean I, don't I was know. pregnant? 
No. I don't know, but I'm not sure why your ear hurting would imply that you're pregnant. Okay, no, this is what they told me was that, like, they have some kind of liability insurance, and because they're only serving, or they're mostly serving, like, women in their childbearing years, like, every single female patient, they would just give everyone, every female patient, a pregnancy test or try to. And I was like, what? I feel like, I feel like like that's a really, I feel like that's a really bad policy. That is what, I mean, I, I guess in a way it limits liability, but, like, at the time I was just like, no. How does it limit liability? Because if they prescribe you a drug and you're pregnant and then there's some kind of damage, like, you could say, well, I told them. Or, like, it might be hard for them to prove that they asked you if you were pregnant and you said no or I mean, wouldn't it be on the intake form? Are you pregnant? I feel yeah. like it's always on the intake form. Yeah, I feel form. like it is, too. And my husband always has to mark no, that he's not pregnant. <laughs> Because there was a danger. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like the most... Are you pregnant? No. Yeah, it was like the most absurd medical experience that I think... It's just one of those things that like... You've had some weird medical experiences. So, and really, that like, to be the most absurd. I feel like I'm not someone who's had like a million, but like... Yeah, you've had some weird shenanigans. Yeah. Mostly I... Shenanigans. I yeah. don't have mm-hmm. any because I don't go to the doctor. You never go, yeah. If at all possible, I avoid. Yeah. No, I can't even. I don't really even remember. I just, I just mo- mainly remember that poster that said, "How about a nice cup?" So shut the hell up. So, I mean, that's that's a bold call. I know, I know, and I'm like on a university campus, like it's not like, oh, this is my private practice and I can do what I want. I'm like, you're taxpayer funded at that point, right? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway, it, it was a bold choice. It was a bold, bold choice. choice. It did not shut me up, though, to be yeah. fair. Well, you thought about it, though. I, yeah, I know. That's true. Maybe it partially shut me up because I, I was like, maybe I should shut up. Yeah. It, I paused. It's because they didn't actually hand you a cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was not going to do that. <laughs> All right. So what's our first story? So our first story comes from WBUR. Uh, radio, and it's the cost of assuming your doctor knows best. Oh, okay. So basically what this article is talking about is the idea that doctors are not uh, infallible and that they do make mistakes, and a lot has been done in order to reduce the amount of mistakes with um, with error being happening like in the surgeon or you know surgery room or... Um, in prescribing. In prescribing things. But this this is written by a pathologist. And so um, they're the ones that, you know, diagnose diseases. And it's talking about the biggest mistake that this person knows of was that they, um, they missed cancer cell in a 42-year-old patient. Oh, man. Um, causing her cancer diagnosis to be delayed. And she eventually died from cancer. Um so, and it's talking about how doctors have this, you know, exude this um, level of confidence and that they're always right and mm-hmm. admitting mistakes is not acceptable um, because a good doctor doesn't make mistakes. So, if yeah. you admit to making mistakes, um, then you're not a good doctor. Then you're not a good doctor. But it's also talking about, like, you know, the liability if you admit that you have a mistake that, you know, you could suffer from that financially or, you know, even professionally. 
by admitting it. So people don't discuss mistakes. So we don't yeah. know with it. But there's the recent study showed that um, 40,000 between 40,000 and 80,000 deaths occurred in the United States from diagnostic error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a surprising number of medical errors, like, because we kind of assume that physicians are just really careful and, like, that mistakes are kind of rare, but they're really not. And and there's a lot of, I think, data about, like, surgeries and, and like, preventable infections that end up killing people and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm looking through this article and I'm surprised that they didn't mention legal liability in here at all because this person's talking about how the physicians need to admit to their mistakes but isn't the reason that they don't because they're worried about getting sued mm-hmm. like yeah. i thought that was the reason that like doctors don't want to apologize anymore because like if they apologize and they're like admitting fault and if they admit fault then they can be sued yeah i think so but these it's also talking about the fact that we don't log or catalog uh, errors like diagnostic errors oh. um and that we're not really tracking them and we're not discussing them. But I thought they sometimes did. Like, there's this whole, like, morbidity and mortality report thing, which I learned about by watching, I think, House or something. <laughs> but I just Googled it really fast, and I think it's a real thing because I found it on the CDC's website. Uh, but I, oh, well, maybe that's something else. Okay, it might just be, like, deaths by illness. Well, there was this thing. Okay, this is so... Such is a, this a bad patient moment? Uh, yes. So there was this thing, though, where they would, like, in the teaching hospital, they would get together and, like, discuss cases and, like, what decisions they made, and then people would ask them questions about, like, why they pursued the treatment that they pursue, and I feel like it's unlikely that that is completely made up. No, that that makes sense, but once you're out of school, yeah, do we talk about do it? Do we talk about it? Probably not, because who, who wants to admit that they screwed up? Although, although... Like, I read this thing about um, medical liability, and there was a study that said that physicians who apologize actually are sued less often, and that a lot of people move to a lawsuit because they feel like there's no closure. Mm -hmm. Like, they know something went wrong, and they're upset about it, and they try to talk to the person, and what they really want is, like, acknowledgement and validation and an apology, and they get nothing, so then they sue. So kind of, like, somewhat ironically... They're trying to avoid lawsuits by not admitting fault, but that tends to prompt a lawsuit because it pisses people off. Sure, that makes sense. I just thought it was an interesting article, especially since we're the Bad Patient Podcast, and, like, part of it is assuming that your doctor knows everything. And, like, while that might seem true, like, they're human, too, and that mistakes are made, and asking questions and following up is, is important. Yeah, and not assuming that, you know, that they're doing everything right. I mean, I guess there's like a kind and an unkind way to ask a question, right? Of mm-hmm. making sure that they're doing what they should do. But yeah, I think the just the whole the whole legal piece to me is this question because how do we balance their the fact that doctors are human and they're going to make mistakes with the fact that like it doesn't seem fair that you you go in for some routine procedure and you die like. You know, it's like well, there has to be responsibility. Yeah, but that's not what this is talking about. This this article, because it's a pathologist, is talking about misdiagnosis. So it's not going oh. into the hospital and getting a sponge left in your stomach or whatever. This is oh. not being diagnosed correctly. So Pure you don't error. so you don't get the so you don't get the right care. Okay. Um, which is which is I feel like way more common. <laughs> 
because yeah. because doctors have taken efforts in order to make sure that um, those types of errors, that the sponge doesn't get left, that it's the correct um, leg that we're, you know, yes. on Wednesdays we do left and yeah. we're only on left, you know, it's so, like you know, that. like yeah. that kind of things that they've done a lot to improve those kind of errors, but they haven't talked about or studied or mm-hmm. even cataloged diagnosis errors. And what he's talking about with the cancer prognosis is that it came up because it was part of a study that was looking at hard to diagnose or often misdiagnosed Mm. cancers. So he doesn't know what would have happened if the woman had gotten, you know, the correct diagnosis early, if she would have been able to survive it. But, you know, that kind of, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, especially with a pathologist, because pathologists don't meet patients. They don't speak to patients. They convey the information to your primary care doctor and your primary care doctor disseminates that information as well. They really got it easy if you think about it. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain type of person who yeah. becomes pathologist as a doctor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It calls to a certain personality type. I would think. I wonder if they have neck problems from like looking in a microscope all day. Oh, maybe. You think? Maybe they do neck exercises. I do neck exercises. There we go. I'm just like a pathologist. Only I don't kill people, so. <laughs> oh, man. The other thing I think is interesting in here is they're talking about how errors are becoming more common because medicine is becoming more complex. And I think that's an interesting challenge facing medicine today, too. Like, it's this idea that we want holistic care. We've ha- we have this, we've figured out that it doesn't completely makes sense to have like one doctor per square inch of your body like one doctor for every special little mm-hmm. thing but yet medicine has become so complex that it's almost it's getting harder and harder for any one person to like look at you head to toe and like determine yeah but what also to, to have a doctor be able to know everything there is to know about every right inch of view is also unrealistic you know mm-hmm. you can either be yeah. a jack of all trade or an expert yeah can't be an expert jack of all trades yeah I think it's definitely gotten harder for primary care folks, though, because, like, you can be a specialist and no one's going to fault you, right? But if you're a general practitioner, I, I feel like you are you get the worst end of the stick, like, on both ends. Like, it's, like, patients are like, I don't know, like, I went to my GP and, like, they just made a referral. How many times mm-hmm. have you heard people complain about that? And then, so, we, we kind of fault them for everything, and yet they're not, like, they're not, des- like, their job is not designed for them to know everything like they're the one doing what we say we want and then we criticize them yeah that's very true (laughs) but i think it is also frustrating when you have something and you kind of look it up online and you go in and then they're like yeah you have to go see this other person you think well how come i didn't just go see the other person to begin with their gatekeeper yeah insurance probably yeah like if you have an hmo you have to do that right Mm -hmm. 101 reasons not to have an hmo i guess yeah. Reason number 52. <laughs> this is cool. Look, this line says there was a, the 2015 report identified diagnostic error as the most harmful and most expensive of medical errors. Wow. I, I would have thought like surgical errors would be the most harmful, but I guess diagnostic has like wider reaching because if you don't, you get the wrong thing, you think you have an illness that you don't have or vice versa. Yeah. Note to self. Fear, fear the folks with the microscopes, not the scalpel people. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. as much. All right. Fear officially redirected. 
All right, ready for the next one? Yep. Our next one comes from the National Public Radio. Uh, and it's adult siblings can make our lives healthier and happier. Hello. So <laughs> it's talking about um, how adult siblings isn't off relationship isn't often studied um, by psychiatrists or um, anybody because sibling studies is typically children. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, but for the most of our lives, we are actually in an adult relationship with our siblings. Because I mean, we're adults longer, right? Assuming and, we have normal lifespans, yeah. Right. And the, our sibling is most likely to be our longest relationship. Oh, that's so sweet. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, right? Because yeah. you're relatively the same age. Yeah, because your parents would, like, die. Before, most likely. Before, you yeah. Know, just statistically uh, or whatever. And you've known them most of your life or all of their life, depending on where you are in the span of children. If you're lucky enough to be the youngest. Yeah, then you've always known them. So I am a youngest. I have an older sister. I thought this was interesting because my sister and I were, my sister and I were, like, pretty close when we were growing up. We played a lot together. But I don't think, like, we always liked each other, you know? (laughs) Sure. Because we... Because, like, and it was talking about in this article, like, there's always a blank one, right? So, my sister was the smart one. She Uh, is an engineer. She is the most intelligent woman that I know. She's, she is phenomenally smart. And I figured that out in the second grade. Okay, okay. That I wasn't as smart as my sister, and I never was going to be. So, I let her have that. Yeah. So, I never never felt like I competed with her on that, because, like, she would get straight A's or whatever, and occasionally she would get B, and she would cry. And it was (laughs) because, you know, she was, she strived for excellence, and that was, like, her thing. I would get, like, mostly B's and, like, maybe a C, Mm -hmm. and, like, I didn't cry at all, but, like, my dad, like, being, like, my dad or whatever, was, like, a B, Ra- Rachel, what's going on with that? And, and he would see my report card of all Bs, and I wouldn't get a word about it. Like, <laughs> oh, um, and so, like, it was just, I just thought that was, it's interesting because um, it's saying that sometimes our, <laughs> our parents can fuck us up and, <laughs> and like, make us rivals with our, our siblings, oh. and that can sometimes outlast um our our childhood and so we can do it but for the most part two out of three people feel pretty close or close to their sibling yeah i feel close to my sibling yeah i have an older brother so i think it's easier too for opposite sex siblings to get along i i know so many stories of same-sex siblings where there was like intense intense rivalry and my hypothesis is that that they're Sadly, there's like gender roles, mm-hmm. and when there's two different genders, you're kind of ex- you're already expected to go in slightly different directions, or you were in the '80s, like when we grew up. Yeah, and so there, there's like a little bit less competition. Whereas, like if you're both girls or you're both boys, then everyone's trying to be like what you're supposed to be, which I suppose in your parents roughly define what you're quote unquote supposed to be. Yeah, and I I don't feel like I was a rival with my sister, but I could definitely see that like. Um... Happening, and then also was talking about how your sibling is there with should be in theory there with you when your um, parents are aging and mm-hmm. with different health issues, and they can be a really source of um, comfort and support. A good source, yeah. Because a they know your parental units <laughs> as well, and b um, you know that you've you've known them forever or whatever. So it was, I just liked 
this episode or this episode article. Uh, this article because um it's talking about how a sibling can be positive so my sister and i she went to college and we kind of i think we became more rivalry in college um just because we were becoming different people and like she left and went to college and i you know was younger so i stayed at home or whatever and like it felt like when she moved out like she never allowed me to grow up past you know oh. 16 from when she moved out or whatever like you're always in that I was role. always like that immature teenager um and so we've had some pretty big fights or discussions <laughs> however you want to call it about like about like being an adult and being both being adults now and making sure that our relationship is um growing and positive um which is typically how um I deal with conflict is like let it go let it go let it go and then blow up at the person for something very small i think that's like the psychologist recommended way is yeah to, uh, you know it seems repress 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 explode yeah okay um but luckily like we are committed to the idea that we will always be sisters mostly oh. because um my um uncle's have been feuding forever and so we always we always vowed that when that happened because we were really little that we would always talk so well, yeah you're not gonna be like that or do yeah, that because they that don't kind of they thing. don't speak and so like it's torn our our extended family apart to some degree from that so um so not my good. sister has and i have always agreed that we will, you have like a pact <laughs> we'll talk about it <laughs> um even if it's me like freaking out at her um and she's always been very good at uh listening and you know understanding yeah. and then um you know we break it and then it mends and it it's always stronger so today's her birthday so happy birthday oh, happy birthday rachel oh wow i uh, i think i think this one that's like so sweet <laughs> <laughs> i was like pause <laughs> um on the not sweet side the thing the, the article says Two-thirds of people in one large study said a brother or sister was one of their best friends. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Do you think that's high or low? I think that's high. See, I had, my sister was my bridesmaid. Yeah. She's your maid of honor, right? Maid of honor, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it's just kind of like a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. It also depends on how they ask the question, right? Yeah, yeah. If they put your sibling in your mind and then ask if they're your best friend or not. <laughs> That's true. You know? Oh, that can also yeah. Influence. Okay, yeah, because if they were... If I'm asking you a bunch of sisters about your brother, yeah. and then I say, is your is your brother your best friend? So you go, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess he is. You know, like... Yeah. Well, I guess in my head, for some weird reason, I'm like, family cannot be friends. Not like they can't, you can't have a friend relationship, but it's like, it's like automatically closer. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like... That's just different in my head somehow. I don't know. That's, that's a, I guess that's a weird way of thinking about it. But <laughs> I love this idea that your parents can screw up your sibling relationship for life. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do that. If you're okay. listening, you must be One more thing you have to worry about fucking up. Careful, careful, for your kids. careful. <laughs> oh. You can not only screw up your relationship with them, but you can also screw up their relationship with everybody oh else in the family. You know what, though? In some ways, I feel like... 
and I don't have kids, so I don't want to get too opinionated on this. But I know a oh, lot let's of... let's do it. Let's <laughs> just dive right in. No, I know a ton of younger parents, because obviously lots of our friends mm-hmm. are parents. And I feel like there's a lot more risk of the parent beating themselves up than creating an unhealthy rivalry among siblings. Like, I see a lot more of people agonizing over sending kids to daycare and how much quality time they spend with them and giving them certain opportunities and like balancing free time and like achievement oriented activities in their little lives. I don't really, you know. Yeah. But with those things, right, because you get certain things and your brother got certain things. Yeah. Like, you know, like, me and my sister did uh, daisies for, like, Girl Scouts, and we did um, dance. Yeah. Okay. But. <laughs> I was going to say brownies. <laughs> um, but my parents said that they couldn't afford to do both, so we needed to pick. And, like, my sister picked dance, and so we did dance. Oh, like, both of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you didn't, like. Like, I, I was, like, a daisy, so I was, like, six, right? Yeah. Or whatever. But, like, the choice was made, and. I don't feel like I would have, I like, uh, you know, the cho- she decided that she wanted to do dance. And so, like, I just, I, I distinctly remember that, have that memory where I just agreed. Not because, <laughs> like, you know, like. Yeah, not because it was your actual preference, just because, like, okay. That was the thing we were doing. it is. Okay, I was thinking about running the other day, and I've been running since middle school and it's always been, like, kind of problematic. Like, I always just struggled with form issues and, like, just, you know, just issues. And, and I was thinking the other day, like, why did I run to begin with? Or like, why did I keep running? And I honestly think that like my brother was running and I don't think I felt particularly athletically gifted. And I think it just seemed like one, something I could do. And two, like he was doing it. So it was like a thing I could visualize. So I was like, I'll just do it. Now why I kept doing it for a million years. I don't really know. Did your brother still run? Um, I don't think like a ton, like sporadically, He's actually buying a bike right now, so if I get him swimming, we could be triathlon triathlon siblings. Yeah. Oh, and if you're listening, please do a triathlon with me. (laughs) Love you. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting how those types of things happen. Because when you were talking about your sister, I was thinking I was kind of... um, maybe a more domineering personality. (laughs) I was also the youngest... High five, youngest. Yay. Which we can now. <laughs> yeah, which we can, because this is our first <laughs> podcast ever in the same room. So there you go. Um, but yeah, so I was thinking, oh, I didn't just follow along, and then I was like, what about running? How did that? And probably I did in a great, to a great degree, just yeah. like, this is what we do. Yeah, and so, like, I think that's, like, part of, like, the rivalry, like, un- sometimes unintentional, like, uh, whether, because it also talks about in the article about whether or not they felt like there was favoritism in, by the parents, right, between the two siblings, uh, but and then also to, in the long run, rivalry between the, the siblings doesn't always meet, measure out in, like, adulthood. Interesting. I just thought it was good because yeah. it made me happy because I have a sibling and that's like one thing that I can check off without really having <laughs> to do anything. I was born second. Score! I know, right? <laughs> I feel like being the youngest has like certain advantages. Absolutely. The youngest are always the best. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> and to our siblings, we love you. We miss you. Well, Laura, what's our next story? 
Our next story comes from today.com and it's could mouthwash put you at risk for diabetes? What you need to know. Is this a story that's designed to make me angry? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mission accomplished. Uh, So this is talking about how a, a recent study published in the journal of Nick, Nitric oxide. Nitric oxide. Nitric oxide found that there people who use uh, mouthwash twice a day had a, quote, significantly higher risk of developing prediabetes and diabetes than those who switch less frequently. (laughs) Wait, why is significantly in quotes? Like, are they trying to hedge by, like, quote unquote, like, significant, like, is a is a statistical measurement. Yes, because the chief uh the oh chief God. scientific medical and mission officer for the American Diabetes Association, Dr. William Cheflu, uh said called the inter- study interesting but said there seemed to be inconsistencies in the data and noted that the proposed relationship between mouthwash use and the risk did not seem plausible. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a shock. Who <laughs> just like I think, like, the, like, super polite way of a doctor saying you're full of shit. Like, (laughs) that's not a thing. Because there's this whole thing where there can be, there can be, if you look at a large enough set of data, there will be statistically significant correlations between things that are obviously random. Like, the time you go to bed and your favorite jelly bean flavor. Stuff like that, that they'll find a correlation. That's a really interesting uh, study. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to participate in that study? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so they do I would need to sample the jelly beans to be sure, though. (laughs) But so the point is, if you have enough people, you're going to find some kind of association. Or, you know, so... So you want to hear their bullshit reason for why? So there are 700 different kinds of bacteria in your mouth. And um, mouthwash kills those things. And um, the some of them aren't bad, right? Oh, it's killing good bacteria? Yeah, but that's how does what that, How does that impact your body's ability to process insulin? So after, so they followed 948 overweight or obese Puerto Ricans who did not have diabetes at the start of the study mm. and kept track of their over-the-counter mouthwash habits, but didn't focus on specific Oh, jeez. So they didn't even control for brand? Yeah. After three years, 30% of the people who used mouthwash twice or more a day progressed to pre-diabetes or diabetes compared to 20% of those who r- rinse less frequently. Um, but they were all overweight or obese and thus all already at a higher risk. Yes. This is the worst. <gasps> okay. I'm not, you know, the cinnamon study we did last week, as we looked into it, I was like, oh, okay, this isn't quite as bad. And this one, I don't even understand. <laughs> they did admit that the study is not conclusive enough that people should alter their use of mouthwash. Thank God. In fact, diabetes patients are at special risk for periodontal disease. That is true. So some of the microbes in your mouth help your body form nitrate oxide, which is a chemical linked blood flow that also plays an important role in regulating uh, blood pressure and insulin sensitivity, which all of which are related to diabetes. So that's, that is their very right, you know, like, 
Yeah. Casual saying that that's that's how it's linked. I mean, so they found an association, and causation does not equal correlation. And what I just, I don't even know why we're talking about this because it's, it's what you need to know. I do not need to know this. No what you one, need to know about your old mouthwash. No one needs to know this. And in fact, if you're at higher risk for diabetes, this is what showed like up in should, my. This is what showed up in my Google News. Like you should, you should be using probably mouthwash if you're at risk. I, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but like, there's a, there there's an association between diabetes and periodontal disease. There is not a correlation between. How do they even think to study this? I'm. Well, I mean, I guess we've been looking, we've been seeing a lot of stuff about, like, your individual, like, microbiome and the gut bacteria and all this stuff and influencing disease. Like, there was that study in in mice about um, intestinal bacteria and, like, linking that to developing multiple sclerosis later. And that's actually something that I think they're going to look into in people. Um, so, so fine. I can kind of see where they got the idea, but... Uh... I think when you when you get an expert to say an independent expert to say, uh, I don't know about this, then maybe that's doesn't seem plausible. Maybe that's your link as a as like, a journalist to say like, I don't know if I'm gonna report about this. this. Wow, wow, I, um, <laughs> and like, was it was it also self reported data? They did include a link to the study, so thank Yay. God for that. Uh, they, they, I can only get the abstract because, of course, this isn't one where we can get full, full information. But they don't say they don't say how they, how they ad- adjusted for this, like, because it would matter if if they did they watch the people use mouthwash wash twice a day versus asking them. It's like the apple thing. If I mm-hmm. say like, Laura, apples are good for you. How many apples did you eat this year? You know. 822. And if I'm like, apples are the worst, how many apples did you eat? 12. And there you go. <laughs> Ugh. This piece is the worst. You're welcome. I feel like reading this could actually be detrimental to people's health. I know. That's like, why I shared it with you. <laughs> it's like the opposite. It doesn't... This is what makes us bad patients, though. Like, right? Yeah. We read this and we go, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't ma- use my mouthwash. Yeah. But hopefully you would keep looking into it, or you would... Listen to a great podcast and learn things like an association does not necessarily mean anything. Like, there can be associations between anything, like any two random things, if you have a large enough pop- or sample size. And they had, th- how many people did they have? Thousands? 948, oh, 45. Yes. <laughs> they recruited 1,200, but only 945. Showed up three years later? Actually. Yeah, which actually, I mean, three years is a long time. My God. Why? Just why? I don't know. Just why? The journal's called Nitric Oxide. I, you know, I would not have guessed there's enough research about nitric oxide to make I a I wouldn't either, journal. but maybe it's quarterly. You call me a bad patient. <laughs> All right, you ready for the last one? Is it less aggravating than this one? I hope so. <laughs> okay. Try to leave on a positive note. <laughs> so our last article comes from futurism.com, and it's replacing cells in the human brain could bring an end to Parkinson's disease. And it has a very nice layout. I know, right? It's really pretty. Beautiful. It's kind of a fun background picture or whatever. I think those are supposed to be dendrites. 
Uh-huh. Because <laughs> those are, are those like the nerves? Oh, wait, hang on. Let me look at what a dendrite is. <coughs> Sometimes words pop into my brain and I think I know what something is and then I don't. Okay, a short branched extension of nerve cell along with impulses received from other cells at synapses transmitted to the cell body. So yeah, actually, I do think that this is a picture of a dendrite. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is talking about <laughs> cell replacement therapy because you were talking about the brain and how we can replace we brain can cells. Hippocampal brain cells. Yeah, so this is looking at using cell replacement therapy as a as a way to um, help fight uh, Parkinson's disease um, because um, there with Parkinson's there are when people are diagnosed there are typically three things that like lead to more significant is um, using the therapy they can help keep remaining cells healthy. Um, and they can help clear clogged cells. So um, what portion looks like Parkinson's is partially caused by cells not proving dopamine. Um, and they're not doing their job pro- properly. And they can help replace dead cells. Um, and stimulate the production of new neurons and replace the function of the dead ones. Oh, so you get new cells that do produce dopamine. Mm-hmm. In order to help correct Parkinson's disease. Disease. However, this is using stem cell therapy, which is, um, as you know, in the United States, very controversial. Controversial. Um, and it's talking about how they're doing studies in other um, areas, in other re- countries, like um, Aus- like China. <laughs> Wait, what were you starting to say? Australia? I'm not, I'm not sure if it was Australia oh, or okay, okay. Austria. Because they kind of both look the same to me, and I, when I was reading it before, I wasn't willing to commit. Uh, Australia. Australia. Um, which have le- uh, more laxed... Uh, regulatory standards. Regulatory oh, standards. Okay, so so fewer restrictions on stem cell research. Yeah. Um, and it was talking about how the therapies have different versions of it, including the CRISPR. CRISPR! Yeah! It's popping up everywhere. We are going to become CRISPR experts if we keep doing this podcast. (laughs) I know. Um, So, yeah, it's talking about what could be a a possible cure for um, Parkinson's disease. Wow. So, So, three therapies that are all types of cell replacement that hopefully will be available to people in the next five to ten years. So how, so what's, like, they're saying these are version 1.0. So what exactly is version 1.0? I think I'm missing it. Oh, okay. So they're saying 1.0 is producing pure batches of dopamine neurons. The next version, so like the next step, I think, Mm -hmm. is... CRISPR modified disease resistant grafts. And I, I can't remember exactly what CRISPR was, but it was something about replacing. A, it was part of editing, gene yeah. editing. Because remember the alternative to CRISPR was like zinc nuclease fingers and they were like little scissors or something. Yeah. I'm making, no one can see this, but I'm making little scissor motions <laughs> with my fingers so that Laura knows what I'm talking about. I understand now. Thank you for If clarifying. I didn't make the little it motions. It would have been a mystery. You it would have never been a mystery. Known. Luckily you're here. Otherwise, I know. I, <laughs> Thank God. Very confusing. <laughs> Okay, and then version 3.0 is using in vivo direct programming. Whoa, Laura, do you see Viruses this one? are inserted into Whoa. the brain and transform other existing cells into dopamine producing cells. That sounds like zombies. It sounds like sci fi. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, because you know, because I guess viruses like they they replicate, and mm-hmm. so that's how it would spread, yeah. like in a benign way. Yes. Oh, I want a virus that makes my brain cells produce more dopamine. Can there are there like good viruses? Can a virus be benign? I mean, that must be the case, right? They're not going to like infect people with something bad. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find this. I'm trying to find this. Man, if you Google can a virus be benign, you get some weird stuff. It sounds like no. Computer viruses. But maybe maybe they can like disable the damaging part of the virus or something. I would hope so, yeah. I mean they've got they've got CRISPR on board, so Yeah. CRISPR can do anything. <laughs> CRISPR I think is a wave of the future. Heard it here heard it here first, first, folks. Do you know what CRISPR stands for? Uh yes. It stands for <laughs> Uh, cluster, regular, interspace, short, palindromic, palindromic repeats. There you go. I read it over your shoulder. I know. Spoilers. Awesome. So it's a type of genome editing. Yeah. I, okay. So like sometimes you like learn something that you didn't know about and then. That's the definition of learning actually. (laughs) And then you hear about it everywhere. Like the glass is broken and now you can't not hear it. I feel like CRISPR is that thing for me. Really? Yes. It's the crack in your windshield that you can't stop seeing. You can't. Yeah. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because it it is kind of starting to pop up all over the place. Yeah. One day at like a cocktail party, someone's going to say CRISPR and you're going to be like, actually, when I consider the zinc finger nucleus. And really, they're just talking about, like, keeping leaves in a salad crisp. <laughs> oh, they're talking about that drawer in your yeah. fridge that keeps your yeah. apples from going bad? That you can with slide meat or veggies. <laughs> super, super side note. Remember the apple story we did on uh, yes. baking soda? Uh-huh. My mom tried it out and said it does not make the taste of the apple really noticeably different or worse. The, huh. the soaking in baking soda. Huh. Which was, like, one of our first episodes. Yeah. So... Thanks, Robin's mom. Now we know. Like, N equals one, but... uh, I mean... Good to know. I didn't try it. (laughs) You know what's also freaky? is like, I didn't realize that Parkinson's was caused by low levels of dopamine. I didn't either. I... That that seems like... A benign thing. Or, like... That's... I don't know. So, dopamine-generating cells, according to medicalnewstoday.com known as dopaminergic neurons or ty- they're like a type of nerve cells in a certain portion of the brain have died. Experts do not know why they die. They just do. So I wonder, I'm looking up low levels of dopamine because I want to know like what that's all about. But I thought dopamine was like depression mm-hmm. stuff. So does that mean if you're depressed you're going to get Parkinson's? Ooh. Another good Oh. Or ADHD. God. So I don't know if this, I don't think this source is necessarily great, but we are looking at bebrainfit.com and we just learned that according to these people, dopamine deficiency could cause or could could be implicated in. which really, Is implicated in. What does that mean? Depression, addiction, Parkinson's, ADHD, and other, other conditions. conditions. Hey, I heard that mouthwash is implicated in developing diabetes. I'm just diabetes. saying. Maybe we should stop brushing our teeth just as like a. Just as a precaution. <laughs> I don't want to be diabetic. Diabetes is worse than people think. And there's three types. Yeah. No kidding. I do. Don't injure that pancreas, man. You're going to get, what is it? Three C or four? I don't know. There was, yeah. 
So, Robin, what's your current medical fascination? <laughs> Other than how it's possible for us to do the podcast while in the same room. It's not possible. That's not a medical fascination. <laughs> we're, we're on the struggle bus here. <laughs> so, um, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of running. There's a technique where you run at 180 steps per minute, so 90 steps per foot. And the idea is that you are going to injure yourself less because... Um, having a faster turnover is supposed to decrease the amount of time that your foot spends on the ground and the amount of force that your body absorbs. And so there's at least two different running methods. One is um, the pose method and one is G running that both advocate uh, running in this way. And in my own running, I'm at like 172 on my best day, but not... You're like, eight short. Yeah, I know. I'm falling short. But so my physical therapist um, told me that there was a study that people who like bumped up to 180 kind of like in a weekend workshop or something using the pose method were all able to maintain that, but that all also got injured. And so I've been just kind of because, – because your body has to adapt and you start as you – increase the turnover, you start to stress the lower leg muscles more. And so you're just using different muscles to run. And so people, um, people tend to injure themselves. And so I was kind of like, so you, you kind of can't win because you change your running form to avoid injury and then you injure yourself. Um, which luckily was not my experience, but I was, I was just in realizing that increasing to 180 steps per minute may not be benign. I was kind of curious about research behind that and you know and like what the actual rate is that you should do it and and just kind of running form in general like how much do we know and how much is still like conjecture because when I was a kid and we were running there was no or there was hardly any talk of technique like in track we would do certain warm-ups and things but this idea that you know, you want your foot to fall a certain way and you want to lift your heel a certain amount and you, you want certain foot placement and certain, like, hip rotation and shoulder position and hand. And, you know, that wasn't really something that we all learned, so. All right. <laughs> I've been told. Listen, you got to worry about these things because you don't want to get injured. Absolutely. <laughs> I can tell you're concerned. <laughs> why I don't run. <laughs> <laughs> you are avoiding 100% of running injuries. Yeah. Congratulations. No running injuries for me. Yeah. Uh, 30 years of... <laughs> 30 years inju- running injury free, free. Yeah. For, for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's more than I can say. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's enough bad patienting for me for one week. You feeling good? Yes. Um, so next week or coming up, we will answer some additional listener questions about the relationship between personal finance and health, if there is one. And we will share some information from a listener who wanted to tell us more about gene editing. Um, before we go, we want to thank our composer, Evan Schaefer. You can listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. Thanks, Evan. You can like share and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on the Apple podcast app on Stitcher or anywhere where you listen to podcasts. We hope if you're enjoying the podcast that you will reach out to share your feedback on Twitter at the bad patient, um, via email at hello at the bad And more than anything, we hope that if you like the show, you will share it 
with all of your friends. Until next time, we are bad patients. Well, practice makes perfect. Bye.